the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about, uh, well, this is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting story, interesting book. It's called Tiger in the Sea. The Ditching of Flying Tiger 923 and the Desperate Struggle for Survival by Eric Lindner. And Eric joins me by phone. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, let's see if I've got this straight. You're uh, an attorney, a businessman, a D.C. native. Um, You've been teaching ethics in action at Georgetown University. Um, What prompted you to to tell this story? Golly, that's a great and natural question, I guess. Uh, what prompted me was my publisher in June of, uh, of, ninth, of 2015, um, who, when he heard about um, uh, Clint Eastwood uh, just agreeing to do the movie on Sully with Tom Hanks and over, it was over breakfast, just a casual breakfast. It wasn't about that at all. It was about some other stuff I was working on. And I made a mention about what my wife's um, father had done, um, University of Detroit graduate. Um, and he said, Eric, stop. He put down his, his oatmeal his spoon for his oatmeal. He said, Eric, stop what you're doing. Write this book. Um, <laughs> every, everything else can wait. Um, everything else can. But you, you need to write this book while there's still the people around who can tell you about it and and what was appealing to to him and and to you for that matter for telling the story uh, about this particular story what what exactly happened well i, I guess a, a couple of things were appealing about it but the the um the two things that that uh, struck him in just a 30 second overview was uh, unlike Sully, and taking nothing away from, from Captain Sullenberger, did a terrific job in 2009 in the Hudson, um, but um, he, he, he touched down uh, 
uh, on the water, flat water, uh, surrounded by rescue vessels, that sort of stuff, with all sorts of modern technology. Uh, Captain Murray was, um, when he started experiencing problems at first, he was a 1,000 miles from land at night, middle of the North Atlantic, raging seas, um, didn't have any GPS, didn't have black box, didn't have de-icers, didn't have any of that stuff. And um, so that was one of the two things. The other thing was the uh, prevailing wisdom at the time, uh, and I mean prevailing, uh, unanimous almost, was um, the Navy told them to to ditch this way. The Coast Guard said to ditch this way. Every single uh, 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 quote-unquote expert, modern expert, told him to ditch a certain way. But he had been trained as an engineer. Uh, flew for the University of Detroit, was pre- president of the flying club for University of Detroit. And he said, you know, I'm just not buying that. Um, these old boat captains, these old flying boat captains, uh, used to talk about flying a different way in, in, in the ditch. And I think that makes more sense. With, and he did it that way. And he, he survived. Miraculously, no one thought he had a chance to survive. And he, and he put the plane down in 20 to 30 foot waves at night. No one was around, and uh, no one's ever no one ever done it before. No one's ever done it since. And uh, so, two things: one is it was completely different from Sully in the circumstances, and number two, he had the instinct and the training to go with his uh, his you know his training and his gut to do something that was in direct contravention of convention. And uh, and he got he got uh, grilled for it too. He got grilled for it. Um, no, safe no heroes yeah. parade for uh, Captain Murray, apparently. Yeah, yeah. No, no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah. And and what were the circumstances that that led him to have to make this dramatic uh, uh, landing or ditching? Well, they were. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. It's a great. It's right. It's called a. It's it, it, the technical term for it is quote um, controlled water landing unquote, even if a ditching, which is, of course, an oxymoron because you don't land on water. Uh, but, um, but the problems were, uh, the, there were, there were several problems, and it was really very similar to the perfect, perfect storm in terms of all the different things. But it had weather, unexpected weather. The Canada uh, meteorologist, Canadian meteorologist, said the weather would be fine. Uh, it didn't expect any problems, so... There, but then a weather, a big, a, a squall came out of nowhere, right? Huge hail. So there was weather problems. There was engine fatigue, not not Lockheed Plane. The Lockheed Plane was a durable, durable plane. Uh, but the engines, um, uh, the right uh, engines, were known to be problematic, unlike the Pratt and Whitney engines uh, on on the Boeing and on the McDonald uh, or, or on McDonnell Douglas. Um, and so you had weather problems, unexpected. You had engine problems, uh, engines start going out, and then you had human error problems, a flight engineer. Uh, today, we have two pilots on commercial flights, almost all commercial flights. have a pilot and a co-pilot. Back then, they had a pilot, a co-pilot, a flight engineer, and a navigator. Of course, navigator is now taken care of by the GPS. The flight engineer um, made a mistake in kind of the heat of battle. He made a mistake. He pulled the wrong lever. And the, the, the result was two engines in seven minutes were gone, two of the four. And that put, you know, for something, for something that, that's supposed to have four engines, the power plants, when you have two, 50% of your power plants gone a thousand miles from where you're going, um, 
you know, with, with facing headwinds and rain and hail, um, that's when uh, the problems really uh, began to gallop ahead. And then, uh, and then another engine failed, and he was forced forced to uh, to ditch. He was forced to ditch uh, to try and exert some control over the ditching rather than just the plane just falling out of the sky. Well, now this happened in, in 1962, but the, the title, Tiger in the Sea, the ditching of Flying Tiger 923 and the desperate struggle for survival, it makes it sound like it's a World War II story. Um, tell me about this plane and the passengers on board and, and where were they going? Yeah, yeah, that's a fair comment. Uh, you're right. It starts with the, 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 uh, the, uh, uh, the 1962 September. These were go- they were going to Germany, and the main cargo, if you will, and Flying Tigers is formed by your right, a, a, a group of guys. They happen to just be guys who formed it, although at the time there were women. They were very, very pioneering uh, uh, pilot women on Flying Tigers. Um, but at the time, in 1962, it was a the world's largest uh, uh, char- uh, cargo charter of, of, of flight, and, it, it, and its main uh, 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 customer was the Pentagon. Uh, it wasn't formed to do that. It was formed to, to do a cargo, and its first uh, shipment was grapes from California to New Jersey, um, but um, by the 62, 15 years after its founding, it had morphed into the Pentagon's, primarily the Pentagon's, also the CIA, but also the U.S. Postal Service and stuff, charter, private charter. What that meant in, in practicality was, and like on this flight, it's, it was flying all military, either active military or retired military or dependents. Um, and so you had the, 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 the largest cohort was 30 uh, uh, paratroopers. Uh, uh, they were going to be 82nd Airborne. They were going to get their, their billet, uh, 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 but, but they were 82nd Airborne. They, had, they were five days out of jump school in North Carolina, and they were the largest cohort. But there were also Air Force. Uh, there were also dependents, wives with children, young children from Hawaii, seven and nine-year-old, uh, pardon me, nine and 11-year-old sisters uh, and their mother flying to meet their, their, her husband and their father in Germany, hadn't seen him for two years. There were uh, recent um, immigrants from Mexico. There were, there were uh, people who were born in, in, you know, in, during World War II. So it was an all-military flight, charter flight, um, and uh, flown by a, a civilian captain, Captain John Murray, but uh, the Lockheed uh, uh, began, uh, it was sketched on a piece of paper by Howard in his mind, probably a Howard Hughes, and it became the main or one of the main workhorses, one of the main bombers, this plane, the Con- Constellation, which became the Constellation in, um, in World War II. Uh, Howard Hughes d- designed it as a coast-to-coast plane, and after World War II, it kind of morphed into, it, beca- it, it remained a Pentagon plane and it remained uh, a, 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 a private plane. So, um, for instance, the Pentagon still used the same uh, plane, slightly configured differently, not terribly configured differently, the same uh, power plants, the same right engines, the same uh, uh, layout, basically, except a little different flight tech. And uh, back then in, 60, uh, in the 60s, NORAD, uh, rather than satellites, gigantic satellites now and some, you know, some uh, B-1, B bombers and stuff like that, NORAD was... Uh, uh, our detection of Soviet missiles and Soviet bombers were 
were strings of these same Lockheeds over the co- around the coast, like like a fence around the United States, up in the sky, uh, separated um, by um, uh, you know you know hundred miles or fifty miles apiece or whatever, and they were flying. So you had this this Lockheed was an extremely durable plane, but by the same token, it was it was near the end of its run because a the just the basic design from thirty seven to sixty two was old, and b the 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 jets. Uh, the first jet engine, turbine engine, was, I think, in the 30s. But it, the jets really began with the Boeing uh, 707, I think, in 1956 or 55 was its first flight. So so these planes were on the out, uh, but but um, uh, this plane was still uh, was still uh, uh, flying. And so it was flying from New Jersey, uh, 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 McGuire Air Force Base, uh, right next to Fort Dix, and it flew up to Gander, Captain Murray deadheaded up from Newark, which is East Coast a base of Flying Tigers, West Coast, and headquarters was Burbank, California. And uh, he came on and took over as captain because of the continuous flying restrictions or limits by the FAA. And so he, he, he got in the saddle, so to speak, and took off from Gander, Newfoundland, and they were headed directly to Frankfurt. Uh, when three hours after they, they took off uh, – um, uh, is when the uh, right passed literally one minute or so past the point of no return, which is when they didn't have enough fuel to go back to Gander, uh, the, the all hell broke loose. So um, military flight, uh, civilian uh, 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 airline, civilian captain, civilian crew, but but their basic, their main uh, customer, primary customer was uh, the DOD and related uh, 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 defense work. And, and even though there were civilians uh, on board as passengers it was still considered a military flight yeah that's a great question you know i'm i'm not i mean i'm not you know you can you can structure it any way you want but it was it was a it was a it was a a contract through an arm of the air force called the military air transport service so it was a military contract of a civilian airliner so i'm not sure how you classify it there was a little bit of jurisdictional uh, push and pull going on between the, I, I, but you're right because the well, the, it sounds the, it sounds Eric like like maybe the the flight had been contracted uh, by the military to fly to Germany, but some other people were allowed to take advantage of this flight either through the the company or through the military. Oh, that's that's right. That's exactly how it was. It was. It was it, the, the jurisdiction was not uh, the, the investigative jurisdiction was not DOD, which would have made it, it was it was the CAB, which became the NTSB, basically. But you're right. The passengers on board, they got low price. They got PX kind of prices because of their their relate. So, yes, it was a it was a, a civilian uh, a, a flight. It was a mixed flight is basically what it was. But it was more probably arguably more civilian than it was a. Uh, uh, military, but you know you can r- really call it any- anything you want. Eric, I need to take a short break here, but this is a fascinating story, and I want to dig uh, down into it some more with you. Can you stick around for a few minutes? A- absolutely, be happy to. Thank you. Great. The book is Tiger in the Sea by Eric Lindner. If you're listening to us on ninety-two point one LPFM, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. 
Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Jonah Bodie. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about a fascinating story told in the book Tiger in the Sea, The Ditching of Flying Tiger 923 and the Desperate Struggle for Survival by Eric Lindner, who joins me by phone. Eric, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no, my pleasure. I I enjoyed hearing it, actually. Thank you for having me back. Eric, we were talking about this uh, this flight. It was contracted by the military. It was a flight from the U.S. to Germany, and it um, had uh, milita- military personnel that were being transported to be billeted in Germany, but also there were civilians that that sort of hitched a ride on this uh, flight. Um, 68 people in um, at least 68 passengers and four flight attendants Um, what now they ran into bad weather and there was uh, some kind of a a, I don't want to say pilot error that's not quite the right phrase but but somebody from the flight crew did a boo-boo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was crew error. It was flight. It was flight crew error. Flight crew in the flight deck and cabin crew. It was flight crew error. It was a flight engineer. He had just been furloughed from Eastern Airlines, which of course you and I remember, but doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and he was picked up by Flying Tigers, and uh, somewhere along the line, the procedures and protocols weren't quite the same, and he. Uh, he got confused and uh, flipped the wrong uh, uh, fuel cutoff so that the fire wouldn't leap from one engine to another. You know, you, you make sure that's that's one of the first things you do is try and contain the fire, analyze it, shoot, suppress it with foam. And he shut the wrong one off, so he basically killed a good engine. And, um, yeah, you had three things. You had, you had horrible weather, unexpected horrible weather um, in the sky and in the water, and you had uh, engine problems, and then you had human error uh, which came together in, in a trifecta, kind of a perfect storm trifecta. Um, and then it was, uh, it was uh, three hours of crisis, uh, you know, uh, management, management crisis fighting, uh, crisis management in the sky before uh, uh, they, had, they were forced uh, to ditch to, uh, to try and, again, to try and affect some control over the circumstances of the ditch rather than just falling out of the sky. And, and were there any casualties? There were casualties. There were casualties. The, the, most, the most remarkable thing, or one of the most remarkable things, this is objectively speaking, not, not my own opinion, was uh, this was the only uh, uh, flight uh, uh, at the time, and I believe since that time, I don't have access to every single flight around the world, uh, 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 but um, that, um, for instance, a lot of stuff in, in Russian stuff was, is kind of uh, spotty, in China spotty, but... Um, the only, the only uh, uh, one in rough weather, violent weather in the, in the Atlantic, which everyone survived. So everyone survived impact, which was, which was a, they call it a one in a 10 million ch- chance. Everyone survived impact, and everyone got off the plane alive. So that in and of itself, that was really kind of the captain's responsibility, right? Get them down, get them alive, get, get them alive so the plane doesn't break apart, and the plane doesn't sink before they can get off. He accomplished that. 
Um, unfortunately, it was a little bit like the Wizard of Oz. You know, the, the witch is, is the house lands on the witch, and everyone's happy, and and they say, uh, uh-uh, uh, uh, she's got a sister, and she's even worse. And that's what happened. They they had to get into that water, and it was just brutally cold, super high, super high waves, more problems, terrible problems with the safety uh, equipment, the safety procedures. And so at the end of the day, there was a significant casualty rate. Still a majority of people survived. Don't want to be a spoiler here. A majority of the people survived, but many, many tragedies lost at sea despite tremendous heroism. When I say tremendous heroism, I mean across the board from women, you know, retired school teacher women in their 50s to flight attendants in their 30s to, to doctors, retired doctors, to re- retired Air Force officers, to Captain Murray and his crew. Um, remarkable. Her- it, it, it was just the whole plane rose up together, black, white, Latino, you know, German, uh, remarkable newlyweds. There were two newlyweds on board. There were there. It was just it was people who didn't know each other, except in rare circumstances. Just a couple knew each other. They they came together in a remarkable show of teamwork. But you know the odds were so high, so stacked against them. Um, uh, a significant number, a significant number died. Dozens died. Now, you said that they ran into this problem a thousand miles from their destination? Yes, yes. But... Yes, they like... Yes, go ahead, sorry. But how far out into the sea were they? Uh, How would rescue people get to them? How long would that take? Well, that's a great question. The the problems first manifested a, a thousand miles from either shore, really, uh, the, the, the Ireland, uh, Ireland was the closest. They weren't going there. They were going to Germany or, or Newfoundland. But when they ditched, they ditched at different different uh, 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 numbers. I've seen in official, doc, but somewhere between 560 and 580 miles from land. That's where they ditched. So instead of right off the shore of Hudson, they were 580 miles from land. Instead of afternoon, it was late. At, it was you know, late at night. It was 10, 10, 10, 12 at night. I think in terms of how far they were, so they were 560, 580 miles from land. That's, that's coordinate one. Coordinate two is there were no, there were no, uh, uh, ships. Uh, the nearest ship was a hundred miles away going in the wrong direction, very slowly, eight miles an hour in rough seas. So just at that point in time, 12 hours away, basically. And the planes, they were they were in a very uh, empty uh, area. There were many, many, you know, the planes fill the skies these days. But back in '62, there weren't that many planes, especially that night. So there were very few planes in the sky at around them um, uh, when when it first manifested. When when he was when the captain and the crew were, were contacting people all, and it was being run by uh, a rescue control center in Cornwall, primarily England. Um, planes started to converge started to change courses so did the so did the ships so at when the maydays began the mayday really the the mayday mayday was right before the landing but uh uh but um before that um for three hours planes were converging and there were i think um 67 planes and ships en route to the ditching site and that ranged from the largest being an aircraft carrier Canada's last aircraft carrier called the Bonaventure and a, and a battle group with battleships 
Um, and there was the first plane to come close was an Alitalia commercial. It was a jet, couldn't do a lot because it was a jet. Uh, helicopters, uh, U.S. Navy was coming down from Iceland. So it was a gigantic rescue effort um, uh, converging uh, on a 300-mile search square mile search grid okay put it in perspective that's four times the size of district of columbia washington dc and pitch black um couldn't see couldn't see anything they couldn't see anything from the sky and the people uh uh who were had evacuated could not see up it was too dark uh, there was a moon but it was completely hidden um so it was um it was a vast rec- rescue operation but it was a desperate it was truly a desperate situation because because you can't survive out in that water very long it's very it's 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 literally hypothermia sets in 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 15 minutes and and you said that uh president kennedy was briefed in getting hourly updates on what was happening with this rescue mission why is this story not better known Uh, why hasn't it well you know that I can't. I can't answer that question. That's a great. That's a great question. Part of the reason is uh, there are two major reasons. One is is the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, just knocked it off the front pages. Literally, it was the number one. Tiger ninety three was the number one story for several days, and even even longer than that. In in, in many. I mean, it it, it just c- consumed uh, the radio waves and the TV waves, and, and it was very different back then. There wasn't a nightly news. The, the longest newscast was fifteen minutes back at the time. And so they have bulletins. Um, so the, and the Cuban Missile Crisis began to, to manifest right about that time. In fact, the buildup had started before then. So that was number one, Cuban Missile Crisis. And number two, um, the, many of the files were stolen, uh, disappeared uh, for various different reasons, which are discussed in the book and hypothesized to some extent in the book. So, um, but yes, uh, 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 JFK was very involved in, in several ways. Uh, the main way, which came out uh, in the records speak to this, and Freedom of Information Act records speak to this, is during the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, uh, there were two major crises going on. The Cuba, but before Cuba, even before Cuba, was the Berlin Wall. And I know, I know you recall it, the Berlin Wall was thrown up uh, suddenly. And uh, it, was, it was a dangerous, dangerous situation with Berlin. And so these, these paratroopers were sent over there. So all this stuff was kind of... Uh, this is pre-Pentagon Papers. This is pre-Watergate. Everything was under national security. No one could talk about anything. No one could report about anything. So, uh, you know, everything was basically covered up. And a lot of the, the, a lot of the communication was on private channels. The, the, so you had all these, the closest rescue ships and planes were commercial. They couldn't have access. They, they wouldn't get access to the, to the NATO uh, channels, the secret channels. So it was very, very peculiar but kennedy did what kennedy did some remarkable things you know whatever whatever you think of the man uh uh we're all pros and cons right but he did some amazing things showed some amazing leadership and some amazing empathy and uh but part of the reason he was so focused on it was because he sent these troopers or, or the dod mcnamara sent these troopers over to berlin um over to germany um in a kind of a chess match with the soviets which involved both germany and and cuba so uh, a lot of, a lot of just you know redaction going on, uh, uh, national security, uh, uh, co- you know blackouts, and the Cuban Missile Crisis knocked it off the, uh, knocked it off the uh, the news out of the number one spot anyway. It's it's just such a fascinating story, and you said 
something when we first started talking, Eric, about uh, Captain Murray, the pilot of the plane, deciding to do something that was considered um, different than the conventional wisdom uh, in right. terms of, of how to how to right. ditch a plane in those circumstances. What was it that he did differently, and was it primarily responsible for people making it off the plane? It was absolutely. Uh, it was. It was. It was probably the only reason they they landed. This is according to experts that I've spoken with. You know, 133 people I I, I consulted. Many experts, pilots who flew at the time. Uh, uh, what what so it, it if he had not done that everyone uh, uh, uh concurs today and and many did back then but even though some of the political bureaucrats if you will uh who didn't never flown a plane right did, didn't didn't <laughs> like it what, what i know that's a huge armchair quarterbacking never happens in washington right no or anywhere no um, um there there were two criteria the, the main the basically um the, the the instructions for ditching Again, across the board in the modern uh, and in the modern uh, anyway of flying modern planes were never land into a wave or in the direction of a wave, and that makes sense independently because you don't you don't want to be a be a force multiplier, right? A wave is wave is just incredible explosive volcanic force, right? And if you land into that wave or you land at an angle to it. It becomes a, a, a catalyzer, which can flip a plane, which can crack up a plane on impact, make it even worse, right? So that makes a lot of sense in isolation. However, Murray was not in isolation. His plane was, was, was going to the sea. Uh, he was in brutal weather. He had terrible control of the plane because he only had one operable uh, engine in a heavy 73-ton plane, and he had to slow down. There's a, real, there's a real narrow window. You can't be too slow. You can't be too fast. And, and you, he was trying to hit the water at 110 miles per hour. That was the, that was the quote unquote the optimal. Think about that, and and, and that that's like hitting concrete at 110 miles an hour. You know, a wall. And he was at 134. Mi- he was he was descending down. Uh, started at 210, and then all the way down, or actually 3 335, I think, all the way down. And he was at, in the 130s, and he knew he needed to get down closer to the survivable number of 110, and he reasoned the only way he could do it was to use the wind as a brake. That's all he had. He, he could only, the ailerons on the wings were only, he had, and the elevators, all that stuff. I'm not a pilot, but he had to use, so he turned towards the waves. Toward, so, so that was like, no, 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 bing, 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 you know, never do that, never do that, never. But, but he remembered hearing these flying boat captains, and planes began as boats. That's why they're called hulls. That's why they're called airships. They began as flying boats. They didn't even think they'd have a land airport. All the original quote-unquote airports weren't at, on land. They were at sea. So these flying boat captains, who all they did was take off from and land on water, Murray was, was doing his flight school, constantly had to refresh his skills. He'd hear these, literally these old wizened boat captains say, eh, you, you know, you whippersnappers, you can talk all you want about what, can't be done but when you're faced with x y and z you gotta fly you gotta fly towards the ways that's it and murray remembered that and he remembered that and he applied it through his training at university of detroit his engineering training and did the math and he said 
I got that's that's those guys are right. I mean, the Navy's wrong, the Coast Guard's wrong, the Air, everybody's wrong in this instance because they're not here with me. And the great thing, what, what was back then, and that's still the case now, is all the rules, all the rules are, are guidelines. The pilot, the FAR, the federal rules then and today, says the pilot has the last, has the final call. The presumption goes with the pilot. Now, that doesn't mean they're not going to rake the pilot over the coals, right? Like they did Sully and like they did Murray or they would have Murray and, and, and other people. So Mur what Murray did coming back is, is Murray said, I've got to go against convention because there's a superior, higher convention of breaking this plane, bringing it down slower to speed. So, right, velocity times, you know, the, the old, you can trade off velocity or speed, mass, weight, all, all it's, it's, it's a physics it's a physics equation. He said, my equation says I've got to take the risk and fly towards the waves, even though they tell me not to, because by flying towards the waves, I'm going to be getting the headwind, the virtue of the headwinds. It's going to slow me down. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, this plane won't crack up. Maybe. So, um, but, uh, but because people died, um, uh, the, 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 the armchair quarterbacks basically said, oh, it must have, it, they, uh, we got to look back to, and, and we got to look back to, uh, uh, the ditching, the unconventional ditching as the reason for the, um, for the deaths, not, not about 15 other reasons, such as, uh, faulty rafts, faulty life preservers, faulty lighting, faulty engines, uh, all, all, all sorts of loopholes, uh, governmental, regulatory, you know, turning the other way, that sort of stuff. We got to focus on, there's got to be a, we're going to find a scapegoat. Basically, they're going to find a scapegoat. That's what they tried to do. Well, this is, this is an amazing story. How were, um, Eric, how were you able to piece this all together with all the, the missing files and blackouts and redactions? Well, that's a great that's a great question, also, and I was pressed to, to 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 get into that. Well, first of all, it started great with the Murray family, right? They're a very very humble family. Uh, they didn't they were they were torn, but because uh, there was a memoir, a, a partial memoir, it wasn't finished. Um, uh, Captain Murray began flying he, again. He began flying in Michigan uh, in, in, in his teens, and um, uh, he. Um, uh, he had some records and some logbooks and some flights, and so there was a there was a there was a family a small family archives. That was a major piece of it. Then then there was there was there was a um, there were archives scattered all over the place. For instance, my, my favorite thing is I could not. I went to the National Archives in person, pulled the files, and they were gone. They were missing. The the experts said the CIA took them, um, and but because some people had bought these. They had to pay for themselves. Bought these uh, uh, transcripts and hearing stuff personally out of their own funds in the '60s. They were scattered all over the place. I found a guy in Alaska, actually a friend of mine, a pilot, found a guy in Alaska who had the file. It was supposed to be in the National Archives. It was not. It was hidden in a hangar in Alaska. So, <laughs> Alaska. Yeah, it's Alaska, uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, Colorado, uh, Oregon. Uh, uh, Switzerland, um, uh, Spain, Canada. I mean, were these, it was literally around the world. Were these yeah. at military bases where somebody might have, as they were being transferred from place to place, carried this file with them from assignment to assignment? Well, you know, you know, I, 
some of it was at military bases. For instance, the C Canadian Museum was very helpful. The Military Museum in Toronto was very helpful. Uh, uh, but no, it was it was mostly per it was personal. It was personal. It was a mix of personal. It was some some archives people were great helping me. A guy in the Coast Guard helped me found some great stuff. Uh, uh, fortunately, the Coast Guard was running its own study, and while the main study was disappeared, the files were stolen. The Coast Guard study was found by another person. But the most interesting find of all was an Air Force uh, major, a retired Air Force, became a, a, an eye surgeon living in Santa Monica, California. And, uh, and um, his son contacted me about how after his father died, um, he was rummaging, just searching the, 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 the um, cupboards, cleaning out the cupboards, and he found a big part of the files which were stolen in the National Archives. He found them hidden away in a cupboard in L.A., in Santa Monica, California. He never knew about them. He never heard about them. His father had never spoken about it. And, and part of that is because so much there was so much trauma, there was so much PTSD involved, people didn't like talking about this, the survivors. And so it was, it was, it was a mixture. There's some great government people that helped, that tried to help me, uh, but a lot of it, most of it was personal civilians who had clipped stuff, you know, a friend, their friend, their wife, their husband, their spouse, they kept a scrapbook. Good old fashioned scrapbook, right? And the, and they had photos, um, uh, and and some amazing amazing photos uh, that were uh, a, a Swiss journalist uh, uh, found a lot of stuff for me. A, a Swiss maritime expert found a lot had a lot of stuff photos. So it was uh, it, it was it took six years of you know it was over six years the project. Roughly half was writing and editing, and half was researching, just digging well, and rooting around. Eric, um, we're, we're almost out of time, but this is such a fascinating story. Um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. Tiger in the Sea, The Ditching of Flying Tiger 923, and The Desperate Struggle for Survival by Eric Lindner. Um, but, uh, Eric, do you... Uh, do you have a website where people can maybe find out a little bit more about you and your work, past, present, and future? Y yes, I, d I do. Thank you very much for that. The, the website is the name of the, the main name of the book, tigerinthesea.com. Just no, no, www.tigerinthesea.com. And there are actual stories about a lot of the passengers and crew on there. Uh, there's a podcast on there also. And I'm also on LinkedIn. I, I, I welcome, I, I get these wonderful uh, uh, emails and calls from family members, you know, and, and spouses. So, so www.tigerinthesea.com, and I'm Eric Linder uh, on LinkedIn. I'm also available. Thank you very much for that, Tom. Eric, thanks so much for spending this time with me. Um, we got about 30 seconds left. What's next for Eric? Well, what's next for Eric is um, uh, spending more time with my with my family, including my <laughs> wonderful 95-year-old 90, mother, who was one of the first ones hired by the CIA. And when I called her at the National Archives and, uh, when she was 90, I said, Mom, um, this guy said the CIA took all the files on, my, on, on this. And she said, Eric, I'm going to tell you two things. One, I didn't have anything to do with it. And number, <laughs> <laughs> and number two... If the agency, she always calls the agency, right? Not the CIA. Right. If the agency wants those files disappeared, you're never going to find them. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, Eric, keep up the good work. 
Thank hey, you so much, Tom. Have a great day. This is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The Unknown Comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to AmericanSchismBook.com. 
MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Any of you here from New York tonight? Any people here from New York? I was just in, I was in New York, I was doing the Tonight Show while Johnny Carson was here and then Johnny went back and I came here. It's supposed to be during the summertime, it's been proclaimed as a summer festival. New York is supposed to be a summer festival. And it is something less than a summer festival during uh, three weeks in July. There was a story, an item in the paper today, I don't know if you saw it, a, a lion got loose in the Central Park Zoo, got loose in the park and was severely mauled. And they, yes. And they had, yes. <laughs> he knocked on the door and they let him back in. <laughs> and he said, don't go out there, baby. You know? Strange, strange city. Uh, and, but I took the train, because I don't like to fly. I take white knuckle flights when I fly, you know, I take those kinds. And I took the train, because I take trains a lot, but, uh, you know, it's mostly old people and myself who just sit in the lounge car. <laughs> and they tell me what a great President Harding was and all that. <laughs> and, uh, and I had a roommate. The railroads, they're trying to discourage passenger travel. I don't know if any of you have traveled on the railroads lately, but uh, if you've noticed, but they're, they're doing a hell of a job. At, they really, they don't want you there and they let you know it, you know. Um, <laughs> You're taking up space, you know, they, they could ship things, you know, instead. But um, I, took, I had to take a roommate. I couldn't get a bedroom. I had to take a roommate from Chicago to New York. And uh, the, the John is underneath the bed, you know, when you, you know, roommate. And the, the minute that thing locks, you've got to go. There's no question about it. It's psychological or something, but the minute you hear that thing click, you know, you're out in the aisle, you know. You've got to go out in the aisle and you know, ring for the porter. <laughs> And there are like eight or ten of you out in the aisle, you know. <laughs> and you all know why the hell you're out there, you know, but you try to act nonchalant, you know. <laughs> you keep hopping from foot to foot, you know, so sort of tips it off. And um, they are rapidly driving me back to, uh, the railroads are rapidly, dri- are rapidly driving me back to air travel, back to air travel. I actually, I make money when I, when, when I, when I go by train, I make money, and I make money, I, when, when I, when I go by train, I make money, the railroads are rapidly driving me back to air back to air travel. I actually, I make money when I, when I go by train, I make money when I, mines will pay half of my fare when I, when I, when I, when I make money, make money when I, when I go by train, I make money because the airlines will pay, will pay half of my, half of, will pay, will pay half of my fare when I, fare when I, because I, I whimper on a flight, you know, and like, <laughs> like when we go through an air pocket, I go, ah! and yell out things like, oh my God, this is it, you know. 
it bothers the other passengers. No. <laughs> and this is before we take off. This is as we're, s <laughs> as, as we're still taxing, you know. <laughs> so you can imagine what I'm like once we get up in the air. And I'm the, I'm the kind of person, I get to the airport like five or six hours before the, the plane is supposed to take off, you know, and go immediately to the bar and start throwing them down. That's the only way I find I can make it, you know, just get three quarters bombed, you know. And, and I, I also, they can spot you on the plane, the hostesses can spot you. Like, you'll, you'll have like five or six drinks in the, in the airport and then you'll have your two, your allotted two, and then you keep bugging the people around you. You're going to finish that? You know, you... <laughs> and they, that's her drink, Mr. Newhart. Just leave it alone now. You've had enough. But uh, I was, apparently there are a lot of people feel the way I do about flying because I have never been in an empty airport bar. It is, it is always jammed. <laughs> I don't care what time you get there. Eight o'clock in the morning, you've you got to fight your way to the bar. Scotch and water? Yeah, like that. And everybody drinking uh, Bloody Marys, you know, because nobody can tell, you know, whether it's tomato juice or Bloody Marys until you fall backwards off your chair, you know. <laughs> But I was sitting in New York, and I'm sitting there, I'm throwing them down pretty good, and I still got like three hours to kill, you know, before the plane. And there's a guy sitting next to me, he's matching me, drink for drink, you know, so. Like, after an hour or so, you gotta say something, guys. So I turned to him, I said, uh, I don't like to fly, you know, I know, it's, I know it's safer than being in a car and all that, but, uh, you know, and you're safer in a, in a plane than you are in your own home, but I, I gotta have four or five belts, you know, before I can get on a plane. And this guy says, you don't, you don't have to apologize to me, pal, he said, I feel, feel the same way about it. Uh, this is my captain I'm talking to, by the way. <laughs> they, don't, they don't like to fly either, you know. And, and I'm going through a new thing now, which is sort of scary. Uh, the last six months, all of a sudden, it struck me. You know where you're given the tickets and you're sitting around in the semicircle, you know, you're waiting to get on the plane. I try to spot the guy I figure has the bomb on that particular flight. You know? <laughs> I have, I have never been on a plane. There wasn't one guy. I wish you had a bomb. You know, so did he. You can always pick out one guy. He sort of dejected and sitting by himself, and he got this plain shoebox on his lap. You know, he won't let the hostess take it. You know, and I found out one thing. That is always look in economy for the guy with the bomb. Never, never look in first class. You know, because obviously, you know, why should the the guy go the extra twelve, fourteen dollars? You know, he isn't, <laughs> he isn't isn't going all the way anyway. You know. <laughs> and neither are you, as it turns out. Just something to think about on your next, your next flight. Uh, <laughs> this, this is a true story. I was flying one time to Los Angeles, and we're up around uh, 35,000 feet, and this elderly woman was on board, apparently her first flight, and uh, we were about an hour out of Minneapolis, and she went up to the hostess, and she said, where's the John? And the hostess pointed out to her, and she went in. And she came out a minute later and asked the hostess for a safety pin. So the hostess gave her a safety pin. And she went back in and came out. No one thought too much about it. And about two hours later, the plane lands in Los Angeles. And I'm one of the last ones to get off. You know, so I, and the hostess is supposed to check the plane, make sure no one left anything behind. You know. So as I'm walking by the john, she calls me over. She said, come here, you, you won't believe this. This dear old soul at 35,000 feet had pinned the curtains together in the john. This is true. <laughs> This is a true story. <laughs> so help <laughs> you, you figure, you know, another plane going the other direction, you know. <laughs> 600 miles an hour, you know. True story. <laughs> 
This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. The Tom Sumner Program.com comes along that's spreading like a plague and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. From the Tom Sumner Show. That wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Boy, did that go by fast and had a lot in it, too. I want to say thanks to Eric Lindner, author of Tiger in the Sea, The Ditching of Flying Tiger 923, and The Desperate Struggle for Survival. Also want to talk to or want to thank uh, uh, for being able to talk to um, Ingrid Newkirk the PETA founder and author of 250 Vital Things Your Cat Wants You to Know. Also want to talk, say thanks to uh, Yvonne Lewis for uh, swinging by to catch us up a little bit on what's going on with Genesee Health Plan. And of course, Carolina Ugaz-Moran, the uh, author of uh, Aline and the Blue Bottle. And that's... uh, a new series for middle grade readers. Uh, it's going to be seven books in the adventures of uh, Aline. Anyway, that's Smoking George, Tickling the Ivories, Armchair Politics tomorrow. So uh, I'm headed down the hall to the living room, but I'll see you then. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.